Where are you going? Questions responded to by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. Thank you for all the questions that you have submitted. We've chosen a representative selection, which I'll now be putting before Achan and Nick, who are here with me on Zoom. Several questions were submitted on how you wrote the books, including these two. The books work well coming from the two points of view. Whose idea was that and how did it develop? That was from Paul of Galway in Ireland and from Rose of Boston, USA. I'm curious as to how you managed to tell the story going back and forth between the two of you. It seems so seamless. Did you show each other what you were writing as you were compiling the story? Did you pick certain days or topics to write about? <laughs> How did it all come together? Achan, could you respond to that? <laughs> uh, I can respond to it, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> this pilgrimage was a sort of a constant ad lib <laughs> with certain certain ideas and plans and constantly changing and flowing along with it. And I brought along a little book with me just to write notes in so I'd be able to give a record of what we did. But the, the book got, the diary got stolen, the book got stolen. So I just still kept some notes. And somewhere I think we're in Nepal. Uh, we were thinking well, maybe it'd be good just to, you know, write this up properly. And that was just stayed there cooking away in the background. That was after about four months of walking. Um, so I had all these notes in this little red diary that Nick had bought in Calcutta. And then we were just thinking about it. And I think the assumption was I'd write this book because I do quite a bit of writing. But then as we, I don't exactly, you know, we talk a lot. So we're just kicking it around. It felt like, no, there's some things I can't say really because Nick was in on it. It was his point of view, all kinds of stuff. It was particularly how he saw me and what he was going through and his view of it, that's very much part of the pilgrimage. And also the fact that you get the idea of two people in rather different minds operating the same scenario. That's part of what the pilgrimage is about. It's not just about walking on the ground. It's about digging down through your mind. <laughs> and one of the big things you've got to do when you dig down through your mind is work out a relationship with other people and get to look at yourself and your attitudes. So... In a way, that's part of, the, of what the program is about, presenting those two attitudes together. So it's very important that two of us wrote something. Wouldn't you say so, Nick? What I remember is, is you writing the first two chapters and me reading them and thinking, this isn't my pilgrimage. <laughs> you were effusive about the difficulties. <laughs> you know how you can be uplifted by difficulty. <laughs> You know, I was thinking, reading it, thinking, this is the worst thing I did in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Especially that first, that beginning, you know, the first, the opening chapter is where, second chapter is we're walking, you know, because, God, you know, so, so then, then I, I, I said that to you and you said, you know, you kind of, oh, you know, you listened in the way you do, you know, you thought about it. You said, well, if you'd like to make some notes, Nick. I'll express what you were feeling, you know. So then you had another go at it doing that, and that didn't work, you know. And um, and we thought, well, I'll have a go at writing it. But of course, the problem was I can't write. I couldn't write. <laughs> I, I I still remember a a, a a car ride, driving in a car, and asking you what you thought of what I'd written, 
and you were finally able to, looking out of the car window and not looking at me, you were able to let me have it full on, <laughs> just how bad it was. <laughs> just, you know, you said, you know, there's no description, there's no this. <laughs> it's atrocious. <laughs> Once we decided to write it, Arjun helped me to learn, to, to, taught me how to write. That's how we ended up like that. He He would go through my stuff and say... Yes, Nick, but what were they wearing? Yes, but what were you feeling? And that, that, that they, you know, that's how it ended up like that. Yeah, and there, are, there are more adjectives than good and enjoyable in the, in the language. <laughs> 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 they're very good and very enjoyable. You were always getting rid of my berries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then we were, because we, at that time we were then both living at Chitter's Monastery. This book took 11 years to write, okay? Mm. So it wasn't like we sat down a writing project. Nick was here to help out with uh, maintenance in the monastery, and I was the abbot. So we were there together, and then uh, when we had some spare time, one of us would just sit down and write something, you know? And uh, so I think most of them started off as I'd write a section, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then... So I don't know exactly how we did that, but I'd write a section and then Nick would write something and they would sort of, they'd sort of seem to fit. He'd pick it up where I went off and it often I think some of his stuff would be almost like a, like a, an alternative view of what I just said. Almost like two musicians riffing off each other, you know, I'm playing this and he's playing that. So that's how it worked out. This was 11 years. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I think I, I was uh, I was doing some of the edits for you of those chapters, and I remember the the first few chapters. It was all red ink everywhere, and then after a while, you know, there's hardly any. You know, it got less and less. <laughs> yeah, because we eventually we got into a bit of a flow with it, but it was a slow process getting it off the ground mm -hmm. because we didn't really have clear idea i had a i had a kind of literary structure in my mind which was that every, there should be 28 chapters because there's 28 buddhas and that each chapter should begin and end in the same note so you see the first chapter begins with the sound of the bat and it ends with the sound of the guy snoring so every, every chapter begins and ends with the same note that was that was the frame and then we just you know put stuff in 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 there that would fit and uh yeah, it seemed to. So after a while, it got into a bit of a flow. And then sometimes Nick would be ahead of me because I'd be too busy doing stuff. And I'd catch him up. And so it just worked. And then we'd look at what we'd written because it was a slow process. And looking at what we'd written and talking about it, when we got time, we'd start to develop a bit of a process uh, of editing and and, uh, and saying what we felt about the other person's work, you know, how it came across and what bits were missing. And that would give me an idea, perhaps, of the next thing I wanted to say, and lead on mm. to that. I, I'd say that, 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 that we contributed to, you know, obviously, Ajahn is a better writer. Um, um, so I tried to compliment, compliment that deliberately by writing simply. You know, Ajahn's, Ajahn's writing is so dense, I would deliberately try and write simple stuff and not try and do that at all so that people will get a break you know and then they go back to something more interesting and dense and then they have a, a little bit of you know i was hot you yeah. know walking along <laughs> stuff. but um there's two things i think were really important one 
One is that um, we're both people who can be really honest about ourselves and we don't mind being totally honest about ourselves and someone saying something about us if it's honest. You know, we... we, we you know, we don't have any sense of privacy around that kind of stuff, and that that the fact that we're both like that made it made it um, possible the book to be possible. Mm. I mean, sometimes Ajahn would say, "I'm not like that." <laughs> you know, we'd have a debate over whether he was or he wasn't. <laughs> you, know, but, you know, as long as it was true, it was we could say it. Mm. And and the fact that we were both writing meant we could both be honest about each other you know if one of us was writing it it's really unfair mm. you know but if we're both writing it you can be totally honest about the other person because the other person's going to do the same mm-hmm. uh, and then the other point i'd make that i realized worked well is as you heard i was very good at structure and themes and everything like that about a chapter which i didn't think about at all until right at the end when i I started some of the chapters, but mostly Ajahn would do that. But I'm a storyteller, so I had a sense of the overall arc of the story. So quite often I would say to Ajahn, no, don't don't tell them that now. (laughs) We'll save that for later. And tell that we need to tell them this now in this chapter, because later on they'll find that out. So I think about the the arc of the story. Excellent. And and then when it came to recording the book um, for the podcast there's a, again there's a couple of representative questions one's from um, Barry in Glasgow in hindsight would you think again about doing the mock Indian accents for the podcast it felt out of touch rather than offensive but some might see it differently and Noel in Coventry wrote you both read the book well I particularly enjoyed some of Achan Sushito's readings it all sounded relaxed and natural. How easy did you find that to do? Uh, Nick, perhaps you could talk about that to start with. Yeah, I can talk about the COD. Because <laughs> 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 I've got a lot of experience about this. Because I've started recording the the Kailash, the, the book of Walking to Mount Kailash, where I, I do a lot of um, conversation. You know, I quote people a lot. And I was horrified that I'd have to do accents because... You know, I'm not great at it, as is obvious with this this book. But I discovered that you can't do it any other way. If you try, if you just do it in your ordinary voice, people are confused who they're listening to. They don't get all the clues that they get when they're reading dialogue. Um, and if you just do it in a standard voice for someone else, it doesn't work. So you have to do your best to do cod accents. So, so that no, I have no regret about doing the cod accents. Hmm. Um, I, I have a regret that I'm not better at it. Nevertheless, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did as good as I could. Um, yeah, Ajahn, you, have you, you got any comments? Of well, yeah, to- I was quite concerned, particularly the Indian, because, you know, his sensitivity to colonialism, you know, British colonialism, looking down on Indians, and this kind of comic Peter Sellers Indian thing, mm. you know, so I was... I was that was sitting in my mind as a background sensitivities. But so actually what we did was he contacted an, Indi- an Indian monk who was in one of our monasteries and said, we'll record this and we'll give you the recording. Please let us know if it sounds offensive or anything wrong with it. 
because we want this to, you know, we don't want to be upsetting people unconsciously or consciously. <laughs> so he listened to every every one of our recordings. He never commented on the accents. He said, oh, you can make it a bit more fruity if you like. So he <laughs> said you could actually ramp it up a bit if you wanted to. So that was very reassuring, actually. He did. He did comment because that that was my surprise that that he complimented us on our accents. That was it. He never ever asked. He, he and it's not like he was just complimentary about everything. He'd get us to change the text, wouldn't he? Because it was offensive. Some to of our our understanding of Hindu religion wasn't quite on, or some of the Upanishad things weren't. And he, he pointed out. So he wasn't just being, you know, timid, but he had no problem with the accents, which was a great relief. Also, I think uh, listeners might be interested to hear your stories of actually recording the podcast during lockdown. I remember you talking about having a microphone strapped to your head at one point. <laughs> yes, relaxed and natural. That makes me laugh. Yeah, because it was <laughs> extraordinary. Because I only had this bar of a simple, I didn't have a proper mic. I had a little dictaphone. And if I had it in front of my mouth, you get the sound of the breath. And so the sound engineer was saying, no, it's too soft and too much breath on it. So the only way I could get it near my head was to, was to put a, a rubber band around my head and, and strap it upside down to my temple. So it was beside my head, very close to my voice, but my breath wasn't hitting it. And so even then, you know, you'd sit there and I'd creak my chair. And, you know, so he said, don't move. Because if you creak your chair, that sounds. If you tap your fingers on the table, that sounds. So don't move. <laughs> Don't move and be careful with your breathing. So, uh, <laughs> so it took a while to get used to that, that kind of being being that strapped in. And I think it was fundamentally. I think the first chapter went rather well because I was quite. And then the second chapter it wasn't so well. And Nick commented, "This doesn't sound very lively anymore." And I realised the problem was I was I was very holding it all very tight to try and get it right. But I was reading the book the way you read a book. When you read a book, you you don't. And I had to actually not read the book, but but speak the book like an actor. And once I got into that, being a bit more dramatic and voluble, then it came across. Uh, it came across rather well, I think. I was pleased with it by the end. You know, the recording quality wasn't great. The voices, I think, were 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 good. I agree with the um, the questioner that some of Ajahn Sajito's readings were excellent, especially that the beginning, the first one. You know, me and Mish, because we did we had one go at it where it didn't work, and then we did it again, and uh, Ajahn really kind of let rip, and uh, me and Mish were stunned by by the reading, and it took me a long time before I could read well. So for about the fi- the first five or six um, chapters. Uh, uh, you know, I'm still disappointed by the quality of them, but because uh, because in those early chapters, Arjun is doing more of the writing because you know I had to, you know he'd already written some of those, so I I didn't do a lot of writing in those. I, it didn't matter that my reading wasn't so good. Then there's a question for Arjun uh, from Mike from uh, Perth in Australia. How much did writing about the experience help you with digesting and learning from it? What was the effect of reading it for the podcast all these years later? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, certainly writing did help. 
it was a very powerful experience, and I don't think you can really uh, take it all in when you're doing it, because when you're actually on the pilgrimage, so much of your system is just trying to get through the day, <laughs> just trying to hang in and get through the day with the various afflictions that discomfort. You can't really reflect upon it; you just endure it. <laughs> so it's only afterwards that you could probably sit down and and turn it over. So writing actually was quite uh, important to complete the process. You know, it, it allowed that room for reflection because on the pilgrimage there was no room for reflection. You just so, you were so in it, and then when you reflected upon it, it was able to notice, you know, and consider the effects and, and also see it in perspective, which really helped to see it in perspective. Um, and also similarly with the, the podcast, it was uh, it was great getting back to it after, after 30 years. Um, I think it's the only one of the books I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> You've also said it's the only book of yours you haven't wanted to rewrite. Right, I actually found it very funny and touching, and, and uh, so it was it was very enjoyable uh, revisiting it, just because I could mm. see this, you know, the the view of hindsight now safely, you know, cushioned <laughs> in my <coughs> comfortable place in England. I can look back with a sense of humour and and warmth when those those qualities were not always present at the time. <laughs> There's another question about the hardships involved uh, from, uh, in fact, from two people, both Graham from Cornwall and Nia from Manchester, questioned the amount of hardship you undertook. And Nia put it this way, there was much hardship for you both and deliberately undertaken. How does this connect with the Buddha's abandoning of austerities and the practice and teaching of the middle way? Yeah, well... But it's a pilgrimage, and uh, the phrase the phrase in in uh, our tradition is dutanga, and we're a dutanga tradition. Dutanga means sort of austere or shaking off. That's definitely a, a kind of a, an attitude and a practice we undertake. Uh, it's testing yourself, uh, and so if you go on pilgrimage. It's not a walkabout. It's not a tour. It's not sightseeing. It's actually taking yourself to some some edges and some limits and pushing against your comfort zones. That's what the practice is about on that level. Now, it's it's <laughs> the Buddha's middle way was really midway between uh, deliberate mortification, such as refusing to eat or standing on one leg or growing your fingernails long or not shit or not cutting. I mean, really deliberate punishment of the bonnet body. We didn't actually seek to deliberately punish our bodies. We sought to try and keep ourselves alive. <laughs> that was our attitude, was not let's make it worse, but actually put yourself in a testing situation. Um, it, was, it, was not, it was not asceticism. So the Buddha was against asceticism, but not austerity. If you look at the way the Buddha lived, for most of us, that would not be the middle way. That would be considered an extreme. But actually, that's what he considered the middle. Mm. <laughs> the middle has moved. <laughs> and for a summoner, you are you're a renunciant. For a summoner, for a, you are you are someone who is renounced. It means you've given up the security of home, comfort, guaranteed food. That's the standard. 
for a, for a summoner, and you go on pilgrimage, then in some ways you you try to live up to that to that that standard and and, uh, and test yourself, patience, resilience, and uh, and looking at what what it brings up in your mind. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just I'll just say something about that that. I was just I was contemplating it as Ajahn was answering, you know, because I've done several pilgrimages. I, I've done one with you, Sam, when we walked across Connemara to to Crowpatrick and then out to Cahir Island. And uh, whatever, however you set them up, they always end up being difficult. <laughs> that walk we well, with you, they do. <laughs> <laughs> But it is definitely part of it. It's the overcoming of of difficulty and working with difficulty. The, the two big walks I've done, the two big pilgrimages I've done, which is this one, and the one to Mount Kailash, were, I think, the most powerful things I've done in my spiritual practice. They're both the things that, they're both things that really, there was a real change that came about through them. And part of that was the difficulty. Mm. Anyway, you you, you had a, uh, you wanted to move on to another question. Well, not really. It's the same theme, in a sense, uh, to do with austerity. But it's a question from Marion from Scotland. And she said, as two privileged Western white men, do you still feel it was necessary to adopt such an impoverished lifestyle in a country where the vast majority live that life for real? Well, it's good I answer this because you know what what the questioner has to take into account is that Arjun is <laughs> Bhikkhu means beggar, <laughs> so he's <laughs> he's not adopting a lifestyle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so for him, the, so it's really only me for to answer this. You know, Arjun was just being a Bhikkhu, which is what he'll be anywhere. You know, um. Uh, this is something that me and my partner Michelin think about a lot because we travel quite often to third world places and places where not many foreigners go. And it's a very delicate thing when you're doing that to not not upset that that culture with with being rich, with being having lots of money. Um, but so then how, somehow on the journey being of benefit when you can in a not upsetting way. So, first of all, I don't think on this pilgrim on this pilgrimage, we actually, I, I deliberately gave away the savings I had before I started. I didn't own anything. I didn't own a house or a car or anything. So, I gave away the savings I had to a charity so that I did go poor and Ajahn was poor because I thought that was appropriate. Um, normally, when traveling, I wouldn't do that. and But I'd still try and live 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 in the way the, of the people I'm passing through because when you do that the, the natural friendliness and and kindness of that culture manifests and if you've got too much money you kind of destroy that they instead see see travelers as something to get something from but you can pass through a society and give little gifts when you stay with people. On this pilgrimage, the only thing we had was those photographs of ourselves. But people like those. Normally, I, I take things I could give to people. And then occasionally you find a situation where you can make a real donation to something and send some money afterwards. So, I, I, so 
I don't. I don't think what we did was wrong at all. I think that's that's the right way to travel in a third world country at the level of the people you're 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 passing through. Did you want to add to that, Ajahn? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, as I say, a pilgrimage is it's not it's not a tour. It's not a walkabout. It's an immersion. You immerse yourself. You dip in. You 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 know you don't just walk. You don't walk on the surface. You you descend into immerse yourself in where in the culture the land the people that you're with and for most of that time of walking through rural Bihar we we immersed ourselves we we went to their level because that's the way you feel you're integrating you're definitely taking on that whole ecosphere the psychologies the attitudes the land the the, the need for survival Rather than just getting in a tour bus, you know, where you just skim across the surface, you you really get your feet into it, and so it's necessary to, to um, you know, to to be at that sort of standard. Um, that's, that's appropriate. You're not a sightseer. You, know. you want to be part of the people, because they're the people who will be feeding you. Uh, how could you walk through a country of poor people with a whole bunch of money in your pocket? Asking, especially to feed you. <laughs> you couldn't, could you? You know. And yet, the point is to go on a pilgrimage as as a Buddhist monk. You know, in that way of living on faith, live on faith. That's the idea of the pilgrimage to live on faith. This means you don't have all kinds of fallbacks. So this means you've got to live dependent or in relationship with the people around you. Well, therefore, you've got to be someone who can be supported. If you don't need to be supported, the faith thing disappears. You're in security, not in faith. You've got a need. You've got to be in need. Mm. Otherwise, there's no faith. Mm. There's no gamble. There's no, no risk. <laughs> mm. I mean, that's the principle of picking life, you know. Mm. And it allows those beautiful interactions to happen with people. With people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and we would be so grateful. And then once they recognise, hey, you know, these white guys, these, you know, are actually, they're just walking across the land. They've got, they got no home. They've got no food. Oh. And then it's not we're asking for anything. You know, and often the, the offerings were modest, but it was a genuine meeting of heart. It was, it was made possible by the fact that we were their level rather than above them. Yes, and yet, you know, there's also several questions about the, the robbery that occurred. Uh, one of, one example of the question was from Bridie in Galway of Ireland. She said, I was profoundly moved by the story of the robbery and how you both dealt with this. I wonder how you now view your actions and what lessons you might have drawn from them with time. For me, huh? Um yeah, as I say, uh, I think both of us, right at the beginning, I think Nick said, you know, this is a bit risky, what we're doing. Uh, I've given my money away, I've written out my will. You know, that that's that's the keynote, I've written my will. Mm. <laughs> this is a bit risky. In other words, mm, you might not survive, bear it in mind. And that's, that's, uh, that's a good keynote for a pilgrimage. That's a very good, for a pilgrimage, that's a good keynote. You are here to put your life on the line. Right? And that takes you to a pretty deep place in yourself, uh, which is the whole point of pilgrimage. It's not, a, it's not a walking holiday. 
is to go to a pretty deep place in yourself where there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of risk, and you just have to meet what happens to your mind at that place. So with this robbery thing, you know, it, it was it was it'd been a very as the chapter proceeds, it's been a really rather dark time in Rajgir, and we were not getting support, and it was a bit risky, and then we had these con- talk about robbers and all that. And I thought, oh, you know, you just deal with it. You know, this is this is what's coming. You just deal with it. You know, if this is what it's supposed to be, this you deal with it. You live with it. Uh, and then when that occasion came, there's a sense of, oh, well, this is the time. Okay. You know, and something in you, when you live close to the edge of that might not survive, there's a particular um, mode the mind goes into at near death. If you've had any near-death experiences, I've had a few, your mind goes into a particular place which was really quiet, there's a certain depth to it, and you just say, okay, give up. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I recognize that place. That was that place again. I haven't been there. I've been there a few times. It's okay, give up. That's it. And just open. And it does that. Uh, and so that's kind of what happened um, at that, that particular situation. Mm. So, you know, my actions were almost inevitable. Really, uh, as, I, as I said at the time, you've got five guys with axes. Uh, what, what's, the, what's the chances? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes, sir, is the first word you come to mind. <laughs> but they weren't having that. You know? I was trying to say, look, you can have my stuff. So, but uh, they, they didn't quite understand what was going on. So you think, oh, well. And so the inevitable wasn't my action, really. My action was to try to give my stuff away. The rest of it was just almost inevitable. The, 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 attackers, the attacker's action just immediately caused that, that reflection to occur from my mind at that moment of death. You know, I was pretty much, okay, this is the moment of death. My mind went into that place of, okay, surrender. So then the body just kind of made that bow, okay, here we go, you know. Um, it was hardly, a, it was hardly, a, not exactly a personal action, it was a, it was an action that came from the de- depth of meeting death. Mm-hmm. Um, what lessons you might have drawn from them with time? Well, I think there's a certain, ah, you know, a certain confidence in the mind. I don't live at that place of near death most of the time. So most of the time I'm living in the top story of my mind, you know, bumbling around this and that, what's happening tomorrow and why is this going on, yada, 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 you know. Uh, and so you, sometimes you lose, lose touch with what, what's there, really, almost in the core of the mind. When you, you put away all this bumble and waffle that's going on in your head, you get down to, you think, yeah, there's that that is ready to, to just surrender. And that's very, I found that very encouraging. And you don't want to forget it because it's essentially death is the most normal, natural, inevitable thing. You should live with death all the time. It helps to keep your life in order from being arrogant, greedy, possessive, you know, caught up with grievances and grudges. You just keep use death as a house cleaner so you're ready to go because you will go. 
Did you want to add anything, Nick, to, to that? Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, because we both responded, both our stories of what happened for us there were so different. Um, yeah, to follow on from the way Ajahn is, is answering it, what it reminds me of is, is um, being there for my mother's um, death and my father's death. When I, for my mother's death, I arrived at a hospital, you know, some time before she died, and I was able to be there for that process and be there right, right in the moment. Um, it was a very, um, you know, very uplifting and a thing to be able to do. Um, for my father, I was the principal carer, and by then I'd been living there for four months, um, and I was in carer mode. Uh, and when my father died, I was on the on the phone to the doctor trying to work out what I could do to help him, <laughs> because I was the carer, you know. And luckily, I had a friend um, um, visiting who had, had um, been with people dying before, and she sat with him when he died. And I feel the same about what happened about the robbery. Um, in when I went to Mount Kailash, I was facing death on my own, not responsible for anyone, and um, my my attitude to it was much more like what Ajahn is just talking about. But in in the in the Indian pilgrimage, I felt responsible. I felt responsible for both of us. So I'd always felt, you know, I'd always felt, you know, what am I going to do if this happens? How am I going to save our passports? How am I going to save the money, you know? You know, I'd I'd had to think like that because, you know, it was my role. You know, yeah. Um, and uh, so that 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 kicked in, like you know, phoning the doctor when my father was actually dying to say, "What do I?" You know, he looks really unwell at the moment. <laughs> you know, say, so, you know, so um, so yeah, I I always had the idea that I'd try and escape and hide the money and the passports. Uh, you know, it's interesting as I reflect afterwards in the book, you know, actually they weren't the most important things, but for some reason you think they are. <laughs> so when you're planning it, you think it, you don't think in terms of the, the film from the camera and Ajahn's notebooks, which were actually the most important things. <laughs> so, you know, looking back now in a more reflective way about it, you know, that's what I see that happened. It was karmic. The way I responded was karmic. It came out of the role I was playing. And I didn't get the opportunity, you know, to to deal with it in the way that Ajahn did. And I, you know, and as I express in the book, I'm just so glad that I didn't die then because I would have died with the, the mind of a, what I express, the mind of a hounded water buffalo. So, you know, that, so yes, I've thought about that more, and I, looking back on it, and that's how I feel about it. Thank you. The, then there was also a question about the relationship, because obviously it was a very intensive relationship between the two of you during the pilgrimage. And there was a question from Jane uh, from Stansted in Essex, asked you to comment on the value of being in a relationship for Dharma practice, as opposed to living and travelling alone. And perhaps Nick, you could talk about that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, the book itself is a demonstration of how useful it was to be in a relationship to do that pilgrimage. You know, it was essential. Um, 
if you're doing it on your own, it wouldn't have been the same. Uh, the, the the added dimensions of the two, doing it with someone else was really you know really important. Uh, and I think relationship is important in in Dharma practice. And if you're I'm a lay person and I spent ten years at Chitos Monastery with kind of one foot in a kind of monastic situation and one foot out, you know, and I really get an appreciation of what, you know, how monasticism is about relationship. I mean, they're, they're all in this large family together and it's a very important part of their practice. And as a lay person, I, I see it's relationship outside is important for the same reason, that, that, that we're, we're designed to be in relationships as human beings. And, I just think it's much more difficult for us as lay people because we then we're then in a relationship you know that has a load of programming around it about reproduction and how a male and female interact and all of that which is and the, there's loads of expectation out of that you know and that the other person is going to supply this for me and and the, you know you know and that person might think I've got to supply things for them you know and expectation and, and that that's what's so lovely in a monastic family situation. There isn't this expectation of what they're going to supply with each other to support each other. You know, there's not the same kind of. They are very supportive and very kind and all that. The relationship stuff is all there, but without the same extra thing that we get in lay life. So I think I think relationships important. I think it was a very important part of the pilgrimage and um, and it's. You know, we've got to. It helps us learn. I think, as a lay person, I, I, you know, I teach now. I always give this advice to people. I think being a lay person and trying to live on your own is a very lonely um, way of living. You know, because because when you're in a relationship, you have someone to love. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Not as good. <laughs> anyway, Ajahn, would you like to comment on it? Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I would agree with everything that Nick has said, really. It's important to to love and to know love isn't romantic. <laughs> it's about being spacious and allowing and supportive. It's not romantic. It's not it's not sweet but it's, it's absolutely necessary and fundamental to human beings if we don't love in that way then something else hasn't properly grown you know uh, i think love is a very very uh, uh solid term for the qualities of heart that are possible and you know between people you know spaciousness giving generosity patience compassion affection you know, and all that, and that's certainly, you know, I think part part of the pilgrimage, because, uh, so monastic life, you are together, but you're not together 24 hours a day, <laughs> <laughs> through thick and thin, till death us do part, you know, <laughs> so, and you're, you know, with each other through, in duress, and the other person's getting sick, and you've got a headache, and you don't feel very well, and you don't agree, you know, well, there's nowhere to walk off to. You've got to stick together. You can't just turn on your heel and go somewhere else. <laughs> so it's something you have to keep giving. And to me, does this, the, to me, the, the, one of the key yeah. features of it is that 
we're both willful people. I'm sure everybody is willful, but you know, you don't get to be what I'm doing or what Nick's doing if you don't have any willpower. Uh, you know, some sense of personal push and willpower, and then you know, you got you that thing's got to soften because you're not going to get it going the way you want it to if you're with somebody else who also has willpower. You can either fight and struggle, or you've got to start to cooperate, and that softening and mellowing of the will is uh, very, very, you know, that's another thing that you can only really do with uh, other people who will come back to you, who will meet you at that place, and, you know, it doesn't have to be aggressive, but certainly you're going to have to work it out, and your own will has to accommodate somebody else, and that's all part of the richness of life, whereby you somehow, we, 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 you get to you get a little bit of the treasure of the other person's life. You, oh, that's the way he enjoys things. I never thought of that. He likes looking at birds. Look at you know. You get a bit of happiness to see the man's happy looking at these birds flying around in the sky. Like big deal. But he's happy. And you think, so that that you kind of oh, isn't that wonderful? You know, so you start looking at yourself. You know, that's kind of cute. You know. <laughs> And so on and so on and so on. So we enrich each other as well. That's part of it. It was tough, but it was also very enriching and a, a lot of warm-heartedness. Warm it was tough places, but fundamentally, you know, you're in it together and you're going to do whatever you can to make sure the other guy's okay. I think Ajahn's right. This is the, the heart, you know, it gives the opportunity for the heart to be in the experience, being with someone else. And I was just reflecting as you we were speaking, if you were to do a pilgrimage on your own, it would be like travelling on your own, where where you can just move on when it all gets too much, or duck out of something, you know. It, it wouldn't have been half of it as an intense experience, or rewarding experience, if you were doing it on your own. Hmm. Well, there's a, a question um, that many people asked ask you to comment on how the pilgrimage has affected you such as Gary from Edinburgh who asked overall the journey seems to have been transformational for you both is this the case and if so what have been the long term changes and effects in your lives Achan perhaps you could kick off on that one thanks yeah I think I've answer this in several respects already, pointing out the mm. values of it and the meaning of it and the long-term benefit. Uh, I think the other thing I would say, uh, apart from what I've said before, is I think it's that you realise you actually belong to this planet, you belong to this earth. It's, it's a fatuous statement in some respects, but Rather than you have to have a house, and you've got to have a place and a country and a passport, and you know little human creations, you can actually live on this planet, yeah, with the trees and the villages and the whole thing. You're part of it. You're not perching on it. You're part of it. It feeds you. It supports you. It, it, you lie down on it at night. You know, you, you get to understand it, and you feel very much more integrated. Into the into the planet, uh, and uh, I think before that, you know, my mind was always you know I, I live on a map in this particular district, and I get on a on a road and go to another little zone, but the territory in between the two, I don't really I don't really know it. I don't know the land, 
this feeling of belonging to it. So I quite expected when we got back to Britain to walk from Heathrow up to Amawadi, like, <clears throat> you know, why not? And sleep out somewhere or other in a ditch somewhere. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, certainly the, the, the self-centeredness, you know, the self-will got immensely dented, you know, you have to surrender so many times, eventually that sense of surrendering to what's happening rather than pushing through it or, or dismissing it. Uh, that, you know, that sense of opening to the situation was, it was hugely enhanced, um, by that, pra- by that practice. And uh, recognition of grace, you know, this <laughs> is a Christian word, but you know, you can get to those places where you're know, walking sometimes days across pretty barren hillscapes and something will come up that helps you. You know, somebody will turn up in some mysterious junction of a path, and there's somebody standing there who will say, Oh, you must come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> How's that happen? You know, how's that happen? Mm. We're walking through the jungle in Nepal, right? We come out of this jungle, we meet this American woman living in, in a in a tourist hotel. Hey, you guys, you want to have a Coke? <laughs> Where does that come from? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're just struggling through the jungle and there's this only American girl comes out with a Coca-Cola. <laughs> Where is that? Who wrote this script? So is that feeling of, you know, if you live, if you live really in, with integrity and give up a lot, something will come back and support you. Uh, and it's not rational, but uh, one has a faith in that. Mm. I remember asking you. I remember asking you quite a long time ago, Ajahn. What do you think about grace? And it was the only time I ever got you. You were stunned into silence. <laughs> <laughs> we were driving up to Amaravati and I gave it to you and then we, you, you, we drove on in silence for quite some time while you thought about it <laughs> so yeah great yeah. I mean, my personality is one that kind of kind of assumes grace in the world I think. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah I very transformational, uh, extremely so. I, I really do think that that and that that pilgrimage to Kailash, both of them, um, resulted in significant changes in me. We we were for both of us. People said afterwards we were much nicer beings. <laughs> they make a point of coming up to us saying you're much nicer now. <laughs> So, so it did that, and but yeah, there was a there was a kind of turning for me from that. That he, he obviously he, totally humbled by it. So at the time, you don't see change, and now I know enough. I understand practice well enough to know that when there's hum, real humility like that, when you're really humbled, it's usually a very good sign. <laughs> but at the time, I just felt totally humbled and useless, <laughs> and only looking back do I see the change. But yeah. There was a, a a giving up of a certain kind of level of wanting something out of the world that shifted from that retreat, uh, that um, that pilgrimage. And so from then on, my practice was on a different level. And I, and I don't think I could have found that through 
lots of meditation retreats. You know, it was it, it, it needed something like that. Okay, then there's a couple of questions from uh, Sirimedo Bhikkhu, writing from Canada. The first one is for, for Achan Suchito. What are the most important things you learned about being a Samana from being one in India for six months? What kinds of new understandings and perspectives did it inspire or really bring home in you about being a Samana specifically, being a Bhikkhu? Mm. <clears throat> There's a saying that the Buddha uh, said to his first group of disciples, he said, walk on tour for the welfare of the many folk, because you should make yourself available, make yourself be seen in the world. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, Yeah, we've become monastic. And in other words, monastic, the one who sticks in a monastery. But that was not that was not the that was not the foundation. The foundation was the road, uh, the wanderer. Uh, to me, that's always been a much more um, deeper sense of what this life is about. It's a road. It's not a, it's not a house. It's not a it's not a you know a, a fixed situation. It's a, it's a transit. Um, and that occasion in India really. Uh, Made it very obvious uh, because one was walking on on a road or a dirt track. You're on on the move uh, with not much future. Um, you know, <laughs> living on the present moment, um, and that sort of takes you sort of takes you back to to the root of what the foundation of the Buddha and his early disciples lived on. And so you really feel like you're much more in touch with the the original modalities of the of the gone forth life, um, and that it works. That it's not just your own practice, but that, and I found this everywhere, not just in India. I do two long walks. I've done them in Tibet. I've done them in England, and the sight of a samana. Is an effect has effects on people, uh, and by and large they're very positive effects. Very little negative effect. Very little accusation. Very little abuse. Mostly just a sense of people feel they stop, they're stirred. What's that? They're inspired, and it, it transcends the culture. You get it in Britain. You know, the people have done too long in America. You can do too long in Australia. People, you get the same kind of responses. And so this in India, obviously they are even more attuned to that. The sight of the holy man is not so estranged from them, and they immediately recognise it. You know, they don't just see that the ordinary village people would see this is the summoner. Um, you know, and then there's a certain sense of, uh, you know, do some chanting, and they're they're really, they're really there with it. You know, they're down on their knees. You do some chanting, and they they feel blessed, yeah, and they feel, you know, blessed by that. Um, when you're actually in that situation, the, I think the irony was, as, as I think Nick pointed out, that that perception shifted when we actually went to the Buddhist holy places, because then the Buddhist monk was the was essentially the tourist with lots of money. 
So the, the summoner was, was no longer a summoner. He wasn't a summoner. He was a visiting Buddhist dignitary. And then the, the, the perception shifted. But if you live like a summoner, people see it. And when people see it, they respond to it. And that's, that's kind of transcendent, you know, timeless. And, and, and in India, very, very near to the surface. So that, that's the additional piece, I uh, say, that made the, the Bhikkhu life much more open road, open road, open territory, open ground, not just in some place. And then he, he asked, that's uh, Venerable Siramede asked Nick particularly, what kind of new ways of seeing the actual life of the Buddha and his immediate disciples arose from really being there on the ground? Oh, there was so much. I mean, the depth of understanding of the teaching that I, I got from just living that life. You know, of, you know and obviously also just my appreciation of of what a bhikkhu is you know what Ajahn has just been saying you know my 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 understanding of you know when it comes to supporting a monk or whatever you know or a nun to my the depth of understanding of what they're about um really really i got a lot from the pilgrimage and then yes the that that that's it goes on resonating. You know, I I read suttas and I I I, I picture India, <laughs> picture you know how we were and what we were doing. So I can really understand, you know, not just the analogies, but the 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 way he's attempting to set up a life, and uh, it really it really allowed me to understand it so much better. Uh, I'd really recommend to, to anyone serious about Buddhist practice to, to go on pilgrimage you, you, you know as Ajahn said we're both strong characters there's not many who could do what we did I'm not recommending you do that but do something do a pilgrimage where you're spending time at the holy places just um, just you know don't do the rushing around in a bus business take your time and I went back with a with a um, with a group of people who I I teach, I I offered to to take a group, and we walked into some of the holy places, like like me and Ajahn did. We walked into Budgaya. We 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 you know several of them. I realised, yeah, we could just walk for a day. The coach can leave us off there, and we'll walk in, you know. And um, so I, because I wanted to share with them the, the experience and uh, give them some flavour of it. You know, both men and women, and they, they were so appreciative. But it was really difficult. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> they, everyone was pushed to the limit by it. <laughs> but everyone was, it was wonderful afterwards. So I, I really recommend anyone who's serious about Buddhist practice use the holy places in those ways not just for the the tour and the kind of effect of the thing but to really immerse yourself in india and where the buddha taught and lived uh, it's, it's meant a lot to me in my life thank you there's a question from Ewin of massachusetts usa what from your journeying might inspire and help your listeners who wish to connect dhamma with environmental conservation, 
both in day-to-day practice and in theory. It seems to me that the values involved in each are aligned and that both go against the stream, stroke around, the floods of blind gratification and confused disconnection. Achan? Well, exactly. <laughs> I think this extends beyond the pilgrimage. This is a deeper or more complete question, but essentially, you know, uh, to realise, well, that the environment is not just out there. The environment, we are the environment. Our mind states are part of the environment. Uh, trees are part of the environment. My body's part of the environment. My state of mind is part of the environment. My so- social attitudes are part. They're all knitted together. And Dharma, by working, works fundamentally on my own mind, but works on my mind in relationship to the physical world, to other human beings, um, and so forth. So it, it actually, Dharma is about the law that unifies the cosmos in its psychological and physical manifestations into something harmonious. And there's the relationship, and it's the duty of the human being to establish the moral compass within that, uh, uh, that that sets everything right. And basically, the very simple law: you do unto others, you won't do unto that, you don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And you just keep extending that beyond human beings to other creatures and so forth. Deep respect, non-harm, non-harming, and integration. Then you feel a sense of harmony. That she means you don't get the, you don't get the incredible needs that the isolated human being experiences. Um, if you feel more integrated, it's, it's amazingly satisfying. Uh, you know, some of the happiest, most satisfied times I've experienced have just been sitting by a campfire out in the wilderness. You feel completely happy. You don't have a whole lot of stuff, but it's something about just being in really in the environment that is, is harmonious. Uh, so, you know, virtue or, or non-harming is part of that. The other big part of it is renunciation uh, as, a, as a Dhamma practice. And it becomes so staringly obvious these days that we've got to do some big time renunciation because we're living way above the limits of what the planet Earth can provide. And people don't want to hear that. But it's the truth. We, you know, we, this Earth cannot provide the material support for the lifestyle that people in Europe and America live by. It cannot provide that. So you've got to do some renouncing. And instead of seeing that as a somewhat miserable experience, if you get a sense of integration to where you're at, it's a happy experience because you're casting off all this clutter and these agitations that get in the way. Uh, and, and so, you know, that, that's a big part of it. The pilgrimage was a pretty you know, <laughs> deep end <laughs> renunciation practice. And I wouldn't expect to live at that standard all the time. But... Uh, it does, it does remind one that one can live pretty, you know, way, way below the standard and, uh, and get by. 
and even living, you know, one can live more, more comfortably than that in an ancient form, and that's very important in this particular time. Yeah, you know. And the other thing is generosity. Because if there's generosity, people are sharing. People are less needy, less crime, less violence, less jealousy, and probably less children. Children in India are basically your insurance policy to look after you. Well, if you don't, if, if we look after each other, you don't need to have 10 kids. You don't need to have 10 kids in case eight of them die. You know, so we've got to look at how, how does this population stop mushrooming? Because again, it's just simple arithmetic. You cannot keep having more and more people on, on the same landmass. So what about renunciation in terms of limiting looking at uh, why is it that we need so much you know and if we share you know you've got people who, who have a hundred billion dollars of personal wealth <laughs> you know that's more than a country has <laughs> couldn't they like share it out a bit <laughs> when you look at the statistics where half i think something like 20 people have got the wealth of half the planet. That that is a, that's. I'm not blaming them. I say something about the system that, that created that is completely out of whack. You know. So there's got to be sharing and generosity. Otherwise, we're finished on all levels, not just physically but psychologically. We exhaust the earth. We also exhaust our sense of trust, companionship, love, the things that human beings are good at, which is love, morality, and wisdom. If we, we lose those, we just got a bunch of money, but we're basically dead. <laughs> On a dead planet. The Dharma encourages, you know, renunciation, generosity, and virtue, uh, and kindness. And it's, it is the antidote. Thank you, Ajahn. Well, Nick, did you want to comment on the on that question? Yeah, well, the start of the question, I think, says, you know, what effect did it have on one's attitude to the environment? And that obviously, for me, it had no effect because having worked in nature conservation um, for all of my adult life until I did that walk, um, uh, I knew it all. Um, you know, the sense of seriousness that people are starting to have now if you if you're a, a, a trained ecologist, ecologists are, are about understanding systems, how everything affects each other. You know, you, you I was seeing that in the 1980s, 1970s, or the early 80s, and leads to a sense of despair. Um, so, um, yeah, the environment. What everything Ajahn said is right. That, and that's why I stopped working in nature conservation. That I saw, I saw the problem wasn't the birds <laughs> or the nature; it was the people, um, and that what the world needed was wisdom. And if I was going to do anything useful, it would be, you know, it would help. You know, that's what I needed to help. And working for ten years, um, getting building the Dharma Hall at Chittas Monastery, getting the management of their woodland sorted out, all of that, the way I helped 
Chitter, I suppose, it's like helping a factory that makes wisdom. That's what I see a, a good monastery, um, a functioning monastery, as being. It's something that's making, putting wisdom in the world. So that's what's needed. And, um, and people giving the reflections that Ajahn Suchita just gave. And hopefully the world will start listening. And, you know, but so far I don't see it. And for my own, my own personal journey has been just one of acceptance. Realising that actually the life on the planet is fine. It's just our habitat that we're destroying. You know, if we ever get the, the habitat to that point where we can't survive here anymore, life will be fine. <laughs> you know, something will survive, even if it's a cockroach and, you know, and, and one daisy or whatever, you know. And then over a million years, life will evolve a whole load of biodiversity again so yeah we've got to wake up to this this planet but still a, yeah, I, I see a process is happening there's just a pro when you stand back from it there's a process there's there's the consumption of biodiversity to make cultural diversity in you know a thousand years ago everyone would have would feel the same about cutting down a piece of woodland and building uh, a hall there or some, some building there. They'd see it as an improvement. Now, you know, we're at a situation where some of us think cutting down the rainforest to make more complicated cities, to make iPhones or whatever, isn't worth it. But there's still a hell of a lot of people out there who think iPhones are more important than the Amazon. <laughs> You know, so it's, there's going to be, there's still a long way to go, you know. And my own personal journey is one of, of doing what I can to bring wisdom into the world. And and when I have an opportunity to do something about, to protect the environment, I, I you know, there's a few situations where I've been able to do that. I do it, but also accepting it's what's happening. Because uh, uh, a lot of people like me working in nature conservation really suffer from this. You know, have a sense of despair, and uh, uh, I don't have that sense of despair anymore. I, I, you know, I've accepted it. This is what's happening in the world. In order to round off this session, there's a there's a question for each of you um, from Rose in Boston, USA. So, uh, first of all, for Nick, she asks, in Great Patient One. You conclude that you managed the pilgrimage poorly, but that something somewhere had changed. Do you still feel that way about your handling of the pilgrimage? And can you talk more about those changes? Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll try and I'll try and put my finger on it. Um. Yes, I still think about it. I, I look back on it as a very significant point in my own practice and my own view of the world. And I think I, you know, I'm not, I'm the, the theologian. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, put me right about some of these things. But there is a kind of teaching in in um, in Mahayana where they, you know, Mahayana Buddhism where they talk about samsara and nirvana being the same thing. And I think that teaching is around, is trying to point out what happened for me on that on that pilgrimage. Um, until 
my 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 practice until that pilgrimage was very materialistic in that I was seeking um release seeking you know um uh, something from the world, seeking uh, experiences of, of wonder or release or whatever you want to call it, um, and so or enlightenment seeking, you know. Um, and there was a turning that happened then um, that I can only now look back on, where and see now is that I I start instead I was just interested in what was in the way. After that. After that pilgrimage, I, I, I was interested in how I make suffering for myself and suffering for others. My focus was on that, not on what was there when that was dealt with, because you know the you know the mind is content, happy, um, joyous, you know, etc. When it's not burdened with the, with this conditioning um, and um, so I was, I, I turn, you know, and I can now see that that was the point. That it was from that pilgrimage onwards that, that my, the way, you know, my how I was going about practice changed. So and from then on, I wasn't seeking, seeking from from my my practice in the same way. So I think that's as good as I can express it. I don't think I've ever said that before. But that, looking back, that's that's what happened. Excellent. And and she puts a uh, question for you, Achan. So what is your answer? Where are we going? Is the answer different for everyone, or is there perhaps no answer? In the great patient one, you offer cryptic phases like, look, it's like this, and that's the way it is. Just wondering if you can expand on your insights. <clears throat> yeah, the uh, the phrases are not are <laughs> uh, are there to invite the reader to contemplate. I'm not saying how it is. On one level, I'm saying it's like this. Life is just like this. It's just moving along the road. People, you know, people die. You bless them, you move on. Life is like a wave. You're in this wave and it crashes and, and that's it. It's transient. Uh, and you keep moving through it. And that, in a way, is what's expressed in the pilgrimage and in that final statement. This is if I look back on the whole thing, all that poignant and frightening and horrifying and funny and confusing time is just just like ripples on a pond moving through uh, you know, and rather than personal rather than personal my personal story about me and what I want what I don't get you know what I'm going to be where I'm going and I want to be this I'm going to get to there this is not a personal story it's a story that writes a person rather than a person that writes a story. <laughs> Once you see, you get the other, you see it that way round. You know, I'm not the writer of this story. The story is life and it writes me. <laughs> and you see that. And you, it, some of the, the 
self-centeredness, the obsessiveness, the doubt, the isolation, the arrogance, the loneliness of the sense of self disappears because the person is really just a, a, a fantasy, a kind of a, a poignant fantasy, a poignant mirage that life plays. You know? uh, and I was just sort of presenting that, but also just leaving a lot of space for the reader themselves to get to that point where they've listened and read all this and felt felt what they felt as it went along, as they were moved by it or abused by it or you know, excited by it or shocked by it. They've been through their, their pilgrimage <laughs> reading this book. So where are you going? You know, you know, you've been on this walk in some or another. Now look, where are you? And you see, all of your story of life is just a story playing itself. And that's part of it. There's also, what is it that's able to see that? Once we know the story, in some way, something steps out the story with a witness to the story, but rather than being the, the actor within it. <laughs> and in a way, that's, that's the journey, I would say. One expression of the journey, spiritual journey, is not to get to some new place where I can be, you know, enlightened or happy or whatever. I'm going forward, but no, I'm going deeper beneath the illusion of self. I'm penetrating that. That's where that's that's what this whole journey, life journey, pilgrimage journey, book journey is about. That's where we're going, and we, we don't finish the journey until we finish that that process. But it's up to the reader to consider for themselves. They've walked with us. Now we're on our way. Now it's up to you, reader. What do you think? Where are you going? Thank you very much, Ajahn, and thank you, Nick. I think uh, uh, the listeners will find that very interesting. Goodbye. <laughs> thank, thank you, Sam. Sam. Thank you, thank you, Sam. Thank you for the questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great questions. Great questions. Well done, whoever sent them in, <laughs> all those who sent them in. And big thanks to Mike, who's helping to edit sound editing together, and thank you for everyone, and Patrick, and everybody's put the podcast together. Personally, it's brought the whole thing back to life again for me, doing this whole thing, it's brought it back to life, and I continue to, to contemplate and be uh, uh, enriched by that pilgrimage. So thank you to Nick. Well, that is the end of the Indian pilgrimage, but not the end of this podcast. As you heard in the answers... Nick has been recording the account of his pilgrimage to Mount Kailash in the footsteps of his teacher, Achan Samedo, which also recounts Achan Samedo's pilgrimage. We will start posting the weekly chapters here on this site in October. After that, there may be more accounts read by others.